Hi folks, Jason Crane here reminding you about the 100 by 300 campaign. The idea is to get 100 members by the 300th show. Membership is easy. You can do it in one lump sum each year or month to month for as little as 10 bucks a month or $110 a year. If you choose one of the higher levels, particularly the $500 a year or $50 a month level, you'll be mentioned on every single show. You'll be an official sponsor of the Jazz Session. The 100 by 300 campaign, visit thejazzsession.com slash join to become a member today. Once again, that's thejazzsession.com slash join. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com, but uh, that won't be the case if you don't become a member, so please do so at thejazzsession.com. You can also subscribe in iTunes or using an RSS reader, and all the links for those things are on the website. My guest today is a guy that I have just liked for uh, for years and years. I've interviewed him several times over the years, but never for the jazz session, uh, just for the radio. And I'm really excited about his new record, which uh, which I really, really like. Uh, you know, in fact, speaking of liking records, somebody sent me an email and said, you really seem to like all the records by the people that you interview, which I think was a a thinly veiled I don't know if criticism, but observation that I do tend to gush about the albums that I interview. But here's the deal. I get more than a thousand records every single year, and I interview two people a week. So if you do the math, I interview about 10% of the people uh, whose records I receive. So that means I have to make selections really rigid and strict selections. And uh, one of the ways I do that is I only interview people about albums that I like. I think in 250-something episodes of this show, I think maybe once or twice I've interviewed someone about an album I didn't really care for. One of them was pretty obvious. Uh, But almost all the time, every other interview, I just choose records that I like. And then Yes, I may tend to gush about them, but that's because I really love the music. Otherwise, why would I waste my time interviewing people? I wouldn't have anything good to say, and I, I feel like part of my job is, is to promote this music. I'm not a critic. Um, I'm helping people tell their stories, and I think that my role is to give people a place to do that. And the easiest way for me to gain some kind of emotional entry into the interview is to pick people whose music I like. So back to Ben Allison, whose music I've liked since I knew he existed, I don't know, more than a decade ago. Uh, He's got a great new album called Action Refraction on Palmetto. And you're actually getting a sneak peek of it right now because it's uh, it's out in a couple weeks. And it begins, it has a, a really wide swath of music covered. But I'll start the way that Ben chose to start. And this is with Thelonious Monk's Jackieing.
my guest is the bassist and composer Ben Allison. He's got uh, just a, a phenomenal new record that I guarantee will just stay on repeat in your CD player, uh, as it has in mine. It's called Action Refraction on Palmetto, and uh, Ben, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks. Hey, thanks for having me. So, man, I'm telling you, I, I'm just totally in love with this record, and I, I thought maybe you could just talk about how you decided to make this particular record, which is... Um, in some ways, continues the kind of experiment with uh, re-envisioning other people's music that you've you've done over the years on various albums. Yeah. But uh, to me, just sounds just incredibly fresh and, and exciting. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's my 10th record. So you reach a certain point where, you know, I've done uh, nine records of pretty much my own, own material, a lot of originals, and as you say, a couple of uh, reworkings here and there. So I, I wanted to take this chance to do a whole album, basically, of... of other people's music, really as a challenge, as, as a way to um, uh, challenge myself as a, as, as a band leader and, and um, arranger. And as I started working on it, I, I didn't really, um, I went through a bunch of different stages. The first one was um, writing a bunch of stuff, you know, really rearranging stuff and, and adding a bunch of uh, new material to it. And then I threw out most of that. And by the time we got to the recording <laughs> session, it was... I had some ideas in mind, but it was pretty freeform. I mean, there wasn't a lot of uh, preconceived notions. The the thing that I um, wanted to add to it were more um, conceptual ideas and um, and some and some new sounds. So, I mean, for one thing, having uh, Jason Lindner play analog synthesizer on it was um, was a really fun addition. He he adds a, a whole lot of new sounds and, and tonal ideas. Um, there's a couple tunes with two guitars, a lot of, uh, the old term is music concrete, but that, that kind of, uh, non-pitched I, sound, yeah, just non-pitched there for sound. It. Yeah, right. exactly. It's very textural. It's, it, it, it kind of builds over time, you know, um, interested in that. I, I, I got this, this iPhone app a couple of, like last year for when I'm on the road and having a hard time sleeping. It's basically a white noise generator. Mm. So... I got so into sleeping with this thing kind of under my pillow every night and I still do. It's just this white noise and it's got a bunch of different settings. And uh I don't know if that's why, but but I I think that's possibly why this sa- this uh kind of noise collage idea has seeped into my music. And um so that was part of part of what I wanted to get to just taking tunes that I love, wanted to try to deal with a, a very wide range of tunes. You know, I mean, P.J. Harvey on the one hand and Samuel Barber on the other hand and a Carpenter's tune and Donny Hathaway and just, just stuff that I like that, that's kind of coming from different places and seeing if we could, in a semi-spontaneous way, tie all of this stuff together.
you think you needed to do all of the kind of intense composition that you did in the beginning of the process so that you knew what to throw out? Kind of knew you didn't want to do that and wanted to just get back to conceptual and sound? Yeah, that, there's definitely that working through process. Actually, the way it came about was um, because I guess you reach a certain stage where in your career and life where um, everybody's crazy busy, you know, everybody's flying here and there, and it's a challenge to get everyone together in one room and really work on the music in the way that, that we used to. So uh, I started this regular Sunday series at, at a place called Koosh down in the Lower East Side. The idea was um, we'd get together every week in kind of trio configurations and just play through some stuff. Very casual, impromptu, um, no rehearsal, you know, guys would just throw stuff stuff up there and we'd, we'd give it a whirl. And um, I, w I was bringing in these tunes that I wanted to do and kind of reaching out to some other friends, like Jason, for instance, who I'd never played with, and asking him if he wanted to come down and, and, and try his hand at some Samuel Barber. <laughs> you know, so that... <laughs> And it was through that process. And who wouldn't want to of, do that? Of course, yeah. Because you know, really, yeah. Yeah. people are just whipping through as soon as I said all the time. Barber, that was, <laughs> right, exactly. Was like, Tell me where and when. <laughs> so, you know, that, 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 that happened pretty organically. And out of um, the experience of improvising through that music, some ideas started to flourish, and then I started writing them down, and then putting them into forms and structures, uh, and then I threw it all out. So it, there was that process. Some of it I saved. I mean, there's a couple of sections... Uh, especially at the beginning of the record, where, where I had written some things that I that ended up making it on yeah. the final project. But. And ditto for uh, we've only just begun. There's some right, kind of exactly. extended bits of that. That's yeah. right. Yeah, some some little ideas that I thought worked. We've mentioned uh, Jason Lindner. Before we go any farther, uh, can you just tell folks who else is on the album? Um, some of my, my cohorts from um, the, the band for a minute. Uh, Steve Cardness on guitar, Rudy Royston on the drums, uh, one of my old favorites, Michael Blake, with whom I've collaborated on many projects, on saxophone, and he plays quite a bit of bass clarinet on this record. Um, Brandon Seabrook on guitars, and uh, somebody I just met last year younger guy um and that's it and uh, i'll just mention uh, for the listeners that uh, steve cardenas and brandon seabrook have both been on the show so you can go to the archives and uh, and check that out and every all of the other players should should be should have been already as should have been given that it show's been on four years and you haven't been on yet yeah. which is a little embarrassing um so i, I wanted to talk about uh, some of the materials 
specifically. And I guess maybe we can start with The Barber, which is the only tune on the record that I wasn't familiar with before hearing this version of it. So I don't really know much about it as a tune. Can you say yeah. something about it? Well, it was um, written for uh, as, a, as part of a song cycle. I have it on a record, Leontine Price uh, Sings Barber, I think it's called, and, and um, part of a song cycle that was commissioned by someone... Um, I forget her first name, Sprague is her last name, and she also was a benefactor at Yale University and gave them the money to build this hall, Sprague Hall. And so we had a, a concert there last fall. We were invited by Yale to come up and play this beautiful hall that they've just redone. I mean, it's it's quite spectacular. It looks like a kind of a, a slightly smaller version of Carnegie Hall. Hmm. It sounds amazing. And uh, I was looking for some material to to deal with at that concert. And I thought of her name, and then I, I'm a huge Samuel Barber fan. And this is one of his uh, lesser-known works, but um, it's just a great tune. It's a tune. It's a song um, for voice and voice piano, and piano. Or, Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, the the challenge was to make it our own and and uh, take it out. I I didn't. The first thing I did was transcribed it off the record as best I could. Tried to figure out what what was basically happening harmonically. Uh, I wanted to keep it loose enough so that it wasn't scored out in the way that uh, you know he would have scored it. Um, but I wanted to get most of the, the basic pieces in, in place and, um, and then see what we could do with it. And as I started writing stuff out, it started getting, again, too technical and too specific. So when we got to the recording session, we ended up playing it pretty much what we call free, where we're just uh, improvising. Um, we're stating the theme and then improvising around a bunch of different tonalities, and, and uh, it changes two or three times during that that process. Do you find uh, over the years listening to your music, um, while there's certainly a consistency to the quality and the conception, it's also true that you bring in many different kinds of elements. I mean, you have a lot of really disparate records that involve all, all different kinds of players. Do you find that you enjoy placing yourself in in new settings? Just, I mean, kind of constantly throwing up new challenges in front of yourself as a musician? Yo, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think you have to do that. I mean, I have to do that. I, I guess I'm a fusion musician. I'm a fusion player. I play fusion. <laughs> and, uh, you know, as a fusion 
player, as a fusion musician. Um, I, I'm constantly looking for ways to, to mix and match different sounds. I mean, it, I think it's a generational thing, too, because we live in an era, musicians of my generation, live in an era where it can sometimes feel like everything's already been done. Yeah. You know, so what can you bring to it? I mean, can we create a whole new genre unto ourselves? I mean, we can't take away the harmony because that's already been taken away. We can't take away bar lines. That's already been done. We can't, it can't get any more out, right? Because it's already been as out as you can get it. Um, out and in and whatever. I, I just, what we can do is take everything that we're um, hearing today and things that we've heard before and remix them in our own ways. And that's that's partially what my approach has been over the years, just taking the things that I love and, and trying to fit them together in different ways and yeah. seeing what works. And it's all personal. I mean, it's all stuff that I like. That's basically my guiding force. I mean, I once read a quote, a Keith Jarrett interview where back in the days when he was making a lot of sense, he, he was talking about... Uh, it didn't begin with, can you shut up out there, please? <laughs> no, no. You know, he, yeah, I mean, he, he, he was talking about the feeling of um, playing what, what he was feeling. The, it, it was very spontaneous and unrehearsed, and he said he just felt fortunate that people liked what happened to come out. Mm. And I like that idea. I mean, <laughs> you know, you spend a lot of time second-guessing yourself and thinking about what it's supposed to sound like, and then... And, and, you know, you want to pull people in as an artist. You want to write something that, that's engaging. I'm not doing this to, um, for my own benefit, just for my own benefit. Otherwise, I, what's the point of performing? I mean, I'm in front of an audience, and I want to pull them in in some way. The question is, how do you do it? And there's that fine line between um, playing what's whatever you want and what's just deeply personal and making sure that that's that something meaningful is being conveyed or something is being conveyed that people can follow and understand and want to listen to right right and so i, I like that i like he's he's uh, sounded very humble at the time it's hard to believe <laughs> but uh that stuck with me you know i i i try to do that start with something that's personal and and hopefully um people dig it yeah Yeah, I uh, I remember the first time listening to this record. I get so many records, and I spend so much of my time listening to music. Sometimes I I ha kind of have to force myself into that like headspace where okay, I'm, I really need to concentrate on this music right now. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to get distracted, especially because I usually listen to music on my computer with my headphones, and so right. the whole internet is in front of you if you want it, you know, that kind of thing. So I remember listening to this record, and it, within the first you know. I don't know, minute or two, just stopping everything else I was doing. And I, I didn't get up again or do anything else until it was done because this record, like so much of your music for me, it just, it really, it 
really draws me in, but it draws me in in that physical way that the music I really love does, where you find yourself like moving involuntarily. Mm. And it, yeah. I mean, it just, it, the, the melodies are gorgeous. The song selection is fantastic. And then the playing is ridiculous. So, I mean, I guess I'm not sure what I'm saying other than gushing like a fanboy here, but the, um, the point being that you seem to excel at finding like that emotional core of the music, whether it's a pop tune or a Samuel Barber piece that I never heard before. Hmm. Um, and I think that's really impressive. Well, I mean, I, all I can say is that it it sounds like maybe our aesthetics are in line because I'm just, so. I'm not, I'm just reacting to what appeals to me. And, you know, I would say like Keith, um, I'm thankful that other people like it too. If yeah. they do, you know, it's like, that, that's pretty much it. It's, it's, uh, when I'm, when I'm looking for, a tune to cover my basic criteria is that feeling of when, when you hear a tune and you think, man, I wish I had written that or I could, man, could I have written that? I mean, maybe I could have written that if I'd been cool enough. I wish I had, <laughs> uh, that feeling of wanting, kind of wanting it in a way. There's a certain, I don't know coveting thy neighbor's tune it's right a little it's like, yeah the, the, the yeah. fourth b commandment or whatever, yeah, exactly. whatever i know i'm violating yeah. some kind of commandment i'm not sure what it is but I'm, I'm trying to make it work and that's that's pretty much the the uh, overriding inspiration i wanted to ask you an emotional context question which i've talked with a couple other people about this idea uh particularly about the tune philadelphia by Neil Young, which is from a movie of the same name, and yeah. that movie was an incredibly emotional movie. And so for me, it, which and obviously the first time I heard this tune was in that film, and so for me, I cannot separate this song, this melody, from the emotional content of that movie, which I found very affecting when it yeah. first came out, and I'm sure I would now. And so I wonder, do you have that same association with it? And if so, does that play into the way you approach a tune like that, the kind of surrounding context, non-musical context? Yeah, no doubt. I mean, for one thing, it's it's a little unusual for us in the sense that we're we're playing music without words. So, as a instrumental musician, I'm always thinking um, visually, and I'm a huge fan of film music. And although we're not presenting the lyrics, we're imagining them. I think as we play, sure. and I'm certainly imagining them as I try to conceive of how to deal with other people's music. I mean, the the um, the Samuel Barber tune has lyrics, and the We've Only Just Begun has lyrics, and the P.J. Harvey tune has lyrics. Jacking doesn't have lyrics. The Monk tune, um, Someday We'll All Be Free, has lyrics. 
The only other tune on the record is mine. That doesn't have lyrics. But 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 uh, five out of the seven on this record do. Um, so that's coming into play. I mean, that's what the, the tune is about, the song is about. Um, you know, I I guess I'm a... I'm a, I'm a huge fan of f- film music. I think I hear visually and I try to write and play in that way where there's a there's a visual component to it. So it seems to work well with with film and movies. So the the whole I use the word vibe just cuz I'm in my mid 40s. <laughs> but uh that's what I'm trying to go for is that vibe, trying to create the vibe. And the vibe is whatever the mood is on a particular piece of music and making sure that that's being conveyed because you can play any of these tunes in in a in a gazillion different ways so the question is you know what kind of mood do you set up and um so for that tune in particular yeah i mean that we recorded that the uh the week that don't ask don't tell was overturned and uh i've got a lot of friends who've been you know active and pushing for that for a long time with who I, I feel a lot of allegiance. And uh, so that, that was running through my mind um, when, we, when we did the take and when, we were, when I was thinking about doing that tune as part of it. As a as a band leader, when you're in the studio for the recording session, uh, are there things that you do to affect the mood beyond the music that you've already brought into the session? Are there are there ways you set up the recording session, or things you might say to the musicians uh, to kind of guide the mood in a particular place? Not at the recording session so much, because I don't want to get into people's heads in that way. I think people, the musicians that I hire, they have their own thing, right? And I mean, we talk about it in rehearsal, so. If someone's heading in a direction that seems to be, for me, counterintuitive to what the tune calls for, I might say something in a rehearsal, <clears throat> you know, maybe as a reminder or, or, or just kind of as a, um, I don't know how to describe this, but it, when, especially with other people's music, I feel like, um, I'm keeping them in mind, but I also want to bring our own thing to it. And I really feel strongly as a band leader that you that I want to leave a lot of space for the musicians in the band to to do their own thing, right, and bring their own energy to it. Yeah. So you know, every time I do a record, I, I sometimes will get get the comment, "Wow, you're a great writer." I'm like, "Yeah, well, it's true." I feel a certain ownership, but at the same time, I, I also feel that the musicians did. Most of the writing, 
and I don't want to write too much. There's a con- there's a concept behind it and some some kind of direction in rehearsal, but the actual writing uh, happens in the studio. It's a spontaneous writing, and and I want to leave a lot of room for the guys to do that. So I'm, in the session itself, I I don't say a whole lot. You know, at that point, it's it's just whatever happens. This isn't these records are done quickly. You know, this isn't a rock or pop record. Right. They're done in a couple of hours. So whatever comes out is what it is. Yeah. <laughs> for better or worse. <laughs> but that's what I love about the kind of music we do. You know, I mean, people. One question I've gotten uh, quite a bit over the years is, "How do I feel about pop music? What about pop music? Do you like pop music?" And I do, but a lot of times. Um, as much as I love a lot of pop music and I reference it all the time, um, at the end of the day, what I want to play is probably not pop music because pop music isn't dangerous enough for me. Mm. And jazz or whatever we call what we're doing now is, um, feels more dangerous. It's risky because we don't know what's really going to happen. And we're really putting ourselves out there emotionally. And yes, I could choose not to release something if it really sucked. But nine times out of ten, I'm, I'm, whatever happens that day is that's it. That's my record date, and I'm I'm gonna put it out and um, hope for the best. And you know, uh, it's kind of a each each record is a once in a lifetime, and each gig is a once in a lifetime. So funny. On Friday, I interviewed uh, Fred Hirsch, and uh, he said jazz has to for me has to contain an element of danger if there's not danger it's not jazz so that's uh, totally right he's right yeah. on the money i totally agree with that yeah and i think you know it's also <laughs> it's funny because i i sometimes get that from from younger musicians who are just kind of getting hip to this whole subgenre of, of art um and they're one of their complaints is that it doesn't feel aggressive enough and it doesn't feel um dangerous enough but i think that they don't necessarily see immediately how dangerous this is because they're just assuming that we put this together like pop musicians i mean i've made pop records i've been on pop records where we've tracked it right right and that's my baseline and we do what we do and we you know you work for a day and a half on the bass sound and then you lay down like two whole notes and then they (laughs) remix it and then you're done and there's just no there's just zero danger man there's no moment where it's like and roll be creative on three, two, one, right. and you have to make something happen. You know, that's dangerous. I don't know if 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 other people might not recognize that, but to me that is because you're you're um, you know, especially with jazz records, there's there's a limited time, and you know when you're playing live, especially you're uh, you're reaching for new things. You 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 tend to do certain things that have worked in the past for you musically and revisit some ideas that seem to have worked on the last few gigs. But a lot of times there's there's all these X factors. You know, we record live for radio a lot where we're out there <laughs> playing in some hall we've never played. And for me, playing a bass that I've never played, that's not uncommon. And it's and it's live on the radio on BBC or whatever. Sure. You know, and there's a lot of that... To me, that's dangerous. I don't know if if other people see that that way, but I think it's it's good for musicians who do this sort of music to reaffirm that notion to uh, other people, to remind them of that fact. Because yeah. it's not always 
apparent. I mean, part of what we do is to try to make this sound like it's effortless in the way, you know, dancers like tiptoe around on their toes and it looks like they're floating on air. Meanwhile, they're crunching bones like you can't believe it. Right. And it just looks like they're floating around. It's, and Carmelo Anthony just slides to the hoop and dunks it in and wow, that looked easy. that's part of the magic anybody could do that yeah anybody I could do that (laughs) you know and that's part of what we do Um, so sometimes that danger is 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 not apparent but it's nice to think about it that way I like the idea of danger also because I think we're not exposed to enough risk taking around us in our lives I mean in our our real lives there is a lot of risk taking often you know our financial lives, whatever there might be. But in terms of our artistic yeah. lives, I uh, just remembered right now reading a story once about the old Phil Silvers show, which is a super dated reference, but if you don't know who he is, you can look him up. But anyway, Phil Silvers, and in the scripts, there'd be all the lines for all the other actors, and for Phil, it would just say, Phil says something funny here. And yeah. I always think, like, <laughs> right, awesome. that's cool, because he yeah. just, no one had any idea what was going to happen, and oh, hopefully yeah. he'd say something funny. And that, uh, that was live television also. Oh, yeah. um, or you think about the same thing with, like, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, where there's a general idea of where this scene might go, but there's no script, and so they just go in and they make it. Now, there, it's not live. Uh, but I really like that idea of of not the not just the audience not knowing what's going to happen next, but the participants right. not knowing what's going to happen because you can feel that immediacy in your gut when it's totally. when it's happening. Yeah, Jackie Gleason. Yeah, yeah. This that was live. It was a totally different era. I agree. Now when they do a live show, it's completely well scripted and rehearsed and performed live, and that's considered. Like super daring and right. risque, <laughs> right? Exactly. You know I mean? We're doing it live. We're, We're reading rude. these cue cards live. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's amazing. <laughs> um, nothing against that. They do much much more complex shows live and do it in a brilliant way. But yeah, there is something to be said for jumping off the off the cliff. And I think that's as styles come and go, and as people argue about what makes jazz jazz. Uh, I would say that that's the one undeniable feature that should always remain a central focus to what we do, and that is that element of of risk. You know, I mean, this 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 debate about what what constitutes jazz continues, uh, especially with you know as a result of people like me who are constantly playing fusion and blending genres. Um, I wish people could see your evil smile every time you say the word fusion. <laughs> Sometimes it's unfortunate that this is an audio-only show. <laughs> I just love saying it. I'm, I'm rebranding myself as a fusion musician. <laughs> you heard bring, it here I'm going to bring folks. that word back. You know, it's going to be hot in about <laughs> two years. Uh, today's episode of the Fusion Session. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but, you know, as, as that debate continues, um, I think that's one thing that... that I think is an integral part of that, of what we, the reason I consider myself a jazz musician, even though when I, you know, certain people, I don't use that word, right? As, as you try to approach certain presenters or certain uh, venues or whatever, you know, uh, that word has connotations for people. Um, so I may not use it all the time, but to your listeners, I would say I'm a, a proud jazz musician and think about myself as being part of that continuum. The, the 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 word itself expands daily. It's it's defined yeah. daily by the people who make it. So, um, whoever's making it and calling themselves a jazz musician, in my opinion, is. I would say that the only prerequisite, though, is that it have that element of danger and improvisation. 
You know, it doesn't have to swing, in my opinion. A lot of great jazz doesn't. It doesn't have to, you know, you could be a great jazz musician, in my opinion, and not like Charlie Parker. I think that's totally valid. Um, the one thing that doesn't change is, is that notion of of improvisation and, and leaving things open for musicians to, you know, do their own thing and put their stamp on it. How did you meet uh, Brandon Seabrook, and what was it about him that made you want to use him on this record? I was specifically looking for a new sound, a new voice, somebody who, who would bring something different to the scene, and uh, started polling some friends. His, his name came to me from several different directions, people that I respect and admire. Um, actually, Shane, we were listening to Shane's, Shane Ensley's new record yeah. uh, before we started recording this session. Um, and Shane had suggested him and a few others. I went to his MySpace page, which is basically him playing his kind of speed metal banjo. And I'm like, all right, well, that's a different set. <laughs> Let me see what I can do with that. So uh, we did a few gigs. We did a concert of Neil Young's music. And uh, I just really liked the way he approached um, improvising. This uh, show, if I remember the date correctly, uh, if people are listening to it in roughly real time, it should be around the 24th of March right now. So are there some upcoming gigs uh, that you want to mention? Uh, let's see, March 24th. Yeah, well, we're going to be um, in Edmonton on the 26th of March. So that'll be a, a foray. And um, also one of my favorite clubs ever, and that's the Green Mill in Chicago on April 1st and 2nd. And when you're saying we, who's the we in that? So that's uh, that's the new the new group. Um, it's it's a slightly different uh, configuration for some of these because um, of scheduling. Sure. But 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 by and large, it's the quartet, which is kind of what I'm traveling with these days, with uh, Michael Blake on saxophones, Rudy Royston on drums, and Steve Cardness on guitar. And then we have our um, our uh, our big um, CD release event. Uh, uh, two nights at the Jazz Standard on April 12 and 13. That'll be the full band with Jason. He's flying back from India just to do the two gigs. Wow, so that's that's a big uh, plus for me and everyone. 
And um, let's see, what else are we doing? Oh, April 5th, I'm doing an interesting concert with a, a friend of mine, Robert Pinsky, a poet, U.S. Poet Laureate. Yeah. Some of your listeners may know. And um, we're doing an improvised uh, set of music, me, Kimbro, Frank Kimbrough on piano and Rudy Royston on drums, and improvising behind Robert as he uh, spins out some of his words at the new school. And what else am I doing? Oh, I'm do- on uh, April 6th, I'm doing one of those Jazz at Lincoln Center listening parties, which I've never done before. Oh, so cool. I guess the idea is that we play some of the record and talk about it and kind of field questions and get into a dialogue about the creation of it, I guess. So that's great. Looking forward to that. Wow, that's a lot of cool stuff coming up. My guest is Ben Allison. Uh, he's got just a really brilliant new record out called Action Refraction, which uh, actually, as you're listening to this, uh, is not out for a couple weeks. Set on uh, April 12th, and uh, you're getting a sneak peek here on the jazz session. Is that? Do I have the date right on that? You do, but I forgot a major gig. Oh, that I wanted to announce. Stick it in there. Oh, and also on April 21st, I'm playing at Town Hall. Uh, a, a good friend of mine and, and collaborator, Joey Arias, who some of your listeners might know. Um, he's kind of a legendary underground performance artist, been on the scene for quite a while. Um, and we've been working on a project, um, on and off for a couple of months. And so we're doing, uh, we're debuting it at Town Hall on April 21st. So performance so, art fusion. Yeah, it's, t- it's a total, speak, talking of fusion. This is total fusion. Nice. We're going to do some, uh, I don't even know how to describe it. You, you have to kind of see Joey Arias to, to know what that's about. He's, he's quite unique. I've never heard of him, so I'm, I'm, I'll have oh, to good. go check it out. Yeah. yeah. Well, he came up, surprised. he came up, um, working with Klaus Nomi a bunch. Okay. And then Bowie mm-hmm. in the, in the 70s and 80s. He was actually an original groundling. I don't know if you know that. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. So with Phil Hartman and all those comedians. So he's got a, a great, I mean, he's just Mr. Personality. It's, it's incredible. He, he's one of the, I mean, if you're if you're into the drag queen circuit, if you're if you're familiar with that whole uh, world, he's I would say one of the top two or three most well known um, out of that scene, cool. and, and just been kind of changing minds and and bending genres for a long time. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That sounds very exciting. So again, that's Ben Allison. Uh, Action Refraction is the new record on uh, Palmetto, and uh, Ben's website will be in the show notes for the jazz session. And uh, man, it's been so great to talk to you, and uh, and thanks a lot for having me in your home. I really oh, thank it. you. Thanks so much.
That's music from Ben Allison and his forthcoming album Action Refraction on Palmetto. Got a little sneak peek of it here today on the jazz session. Thanks to Ben, and thanks to the Respect Sextet for providing the theme music to this show. They are online at respectsextet.com, and they've got some uh, some great records there. And in just a couple of days, if you're listening to this on the day that it's uh, posted, the t- which would be the 24th of March, 2011, in two days, on the 26th of March, 2011, Respect Sextet is playing a free show at BAM Cafe at 9 p.m. in Brooklyn. So go check that out. Details at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel, who designed the show's logo. He tweets at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Thank you for listening. And now get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can. And come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.